This morning our passage of scripture is Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. Uh, we are kind of taking a step back in a sense, and, and here's why. The first uh, Sunday in May we began going through Acts, and we, we hit verses uh, 1 through 11. And uh, in that time, we, we talked about the fact that uh, Acts is basically Luke part 2. It's just the sequel. And uh, uh, Luke very much wants all of us to see this as the sequel. Um, if you go back to verse 1, uh, you see, he says, In my first book, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach. Okay? That was just the beginning of Jesus' works. What he's telling us here is this second volume, even though I'm about to tell you that Jesus ascended into heaven, that does not mean that the works of Jesus Christ are done He's saying you're about to see the works of Jesus Christ actually explode as the body of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, goes and takes the message of Christ to a lost world that desperately needs the hope that's only found in Jesus. And so Luke says, you're about to see the best part. You've seen all Jesus did here on earth, but when he ascends to heaven... When he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, when he is interceding for us, and when his spirit is working, you hadn't seen anything yet until you see what's about to happen. And so there Jesus told them, you guys are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the city, that area, then Samaria. Samaria was the area to the north of those people that were a little bit different than us. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, he says. And that's to everybody. He said, this message is for all people. And when he says, you're going to be my witnesses, he doesn't mean what we think of when we think of witness as in somebody in a court of law. He's actually talking about someone who is a herald who goes and proclaims. Because in the ancient world, people understood that they'd rather have a good king, but even a bad king was better than chaos. Some people today don't, don't get that, don't understand that. But any government is better than no government at all. Because when there's no ruler, when there's no government, there's no authority, then things are in chaos and things are bad. So when a new emperor would come into power... He would send heralds to go out and to announce and to be witnesses to the fact that his kingdom had arrived. And Jesus is saying to the disciples and all of us disciples who followed them, you are my witnesses. You are the ones to confirm the fact that my kingdom is now spreading on this earth. And it is going to continue to grow until the fullness of time when I come again and that kingdom is finally consummated. And so he, he gives the men this message. He rises into heaven. They're just staring. The angels say, why are you staring into heaven? The same way that he went, he's going to come again one day. And they say, wow, we got to be about God's work and his business. And so they go back and then they, uh, they begin to gather together and meet together. So now we're going to pick up from that. In verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to stand with me as we read and follow along as I read this passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. 
The apostles were at the Mount of Olives when this happened. So they walked the half mile back to Jerusalem. Then they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here's the list of those present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James. And they, were, they all met together continually for prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, on a day when about 120 believers were present, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, it was necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided the temple police to arrest Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us, chosen to share in the ministry with us. Judas bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. And falling there, he burst open, spilling out his intestines. The news of his death spread rapidly among all the people of Jerusalem. And they gave the place the Aramaic name, Akeldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, This was predicted in the book of Psalms where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. And again, let his position be given to someone else. So now we must choose another man to take Judas's place. It must be someone who has been with us all the time that we were with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us into heaven. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barabbas, Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed for the right man to be chosen. O Lord, they said, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas the traitor in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and in this way, Matthias was chosen and became an apostle with the other eleven. Father God, we pray that you would take these words of Scripture. Lord, you would use them in our hearts to help us to see you as you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to see ourselves, the church, for who we are and how we ought to live in light of who we are. Father, we pray and ask that your blessing would be upon your word and your spirit would enliven our spirit. Speak to us. Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to look at what I'm going to call core values of the early church. Not that I think that they had like some slogan and mission statement other than what Jesus gave them in the Great Commission. But I think these things, these are some things that naturally came about and you see in the early church. And it is instructive for us about how our lives should be and how we as a church should live. What the church should look like. The first thing I see in this passage is that the early church experienced unity within diversity. 
unity within diversity. Now, diversity today is kind of an ugly word. Because for a lot of people, that means quotas. That means rigging things, fixing things, trying to shove people into certain places. But that's not at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not limited to just one certain type and group of people. But it is open and available to us all. We are all bound together uh, by God's Spirit. And that is an amazing thing. When you look at a church, and especially the early church, especially the church as it really should be, you get people from all walks of life, all sorts of different people, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, men and women, boys and girls, all sorts of different people. And the Bible says they were all in one accord. It meant they were really unified. They were really together. Was it because they were the exact same type of people? Absolutely not. You, you had some people who were tax collectors or former tax collectors. You had people who were fishermen. You had people who were carpenters. You had people who were soldiers. You had all sorts of different types of people all coming together in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they applied some sort of quota system for everything they did. In fact, as you, as you look at the list of the apostles... Uh, they were 12 Jewish men. Now that in itself is not very diverse, right? And in fact, when they said Judas is gone and we need to fill another in his place, they didn't say, well, we need to diversify here. Um, so we better, we better find a woman for this list or we better find someone of a different ethnicity for this list. Uh, no, it was another Jewish man that was put into place. But there's a very good reason for that. These 12 apostles were always representatives. They were always like the 12 tribes of Israel, which were named after, which were patterned after the 12 patriarchs, those 12 sons from whom the entire nation of Israel had come. And they said, we're going to find a 12th man. We're carrying on that representation that Jesus set up. And they set some they set some very specific things about this man, uh, that he had to be one who had been with Jesus the whole time from the very beginning back when Jesus was baptized by the Apostle John, or by John the Baptist, excuse me, when he was baptized by John the Baptist all the way to the resurrection. We have to find some people like that, and we'll nominate them. And these would have been men because of the close association, the traveling to remote and distant areas uh, these closest disciples would have been men. But we also see, and we'll see later on, that Jesus' ministry included women in many different ways. And in fact, they were vital in the early church. We hear Mary, the mother of Jesus, and many other women were there and were vital to the founding of the church. But the twelve apostles, because of the symbolism, because of the way the disciples were, because they were to be the official witnesses. And remember we talked about that? They were the ones to proclaim that Christ's kingdom had come. Uh, it would be a man. Now there were several who would have met those qualifications. But one in particular uh, was chosen. And so that brings us really to a second core value. We see first 
a unity within the church, even though there's a diversity, even though there's men and women of all sorts of different backgrounds, and that even explodes to the non-Jewish people as Acts goes on. Well, the second uh, core value we see of the church here is shared and sacrificial leadership. Shared and sacrificial leadership. It, become, it makes me very uncomfortable when I go to a church... And I realized quickly that a particular church that I've attended, that I've visited, revolves around one person. Now that one person, or maybe a couple of people, or three people, or whatever, you will see this often in churches, but it's, it's not from God. It's against everything that he called on. You will see many churches where one or two or three people controls everything. Now that might happen to be the pastor... Uh, that might happen to be the big mama of the church that tells everybody what to do. It might happen to be uh, the oldest deacon or elder or, or some kind of, you know, the patriarch of the family or something. And the whole church revolves around them and what they want and wish. But do you know that every healthy church is, is working, is successful, because there are a great variety of leaders in place that are serving, that are following Jesus. And this leadership is very important. Even though we've just said there's a unity that comes because everybody is important. You know, Paul said in Galatians 3.28, In Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. So all are able to equally participate in the body of Christ, whatever your background is. And yet there is still a special place for leadership. There is a need for leadership in every church. And as you read the book of Acts, you will see leadership emerge time and time again. But it's different people. Sometimes it's Peter. Sometimes it's James. Sometimes it's Paul. Sometimes it's Silas. On and on, over and over, we see different people emerging as leaders. And these leaders, there is a shared leadership. People work together to accomplish God's purposes. I try to be very quick when people compliment me on this church. To thank them for what they've said, if it's about my sermon or about some ministry. But to let them know, this church is not about Tim Lee. Uh, this church is not about any one person. First of all, we know it's about God. But if we say, well, who on a human level makes this church work, uh, we would be here the rest of the service just me listing different people in this church who make this church function and work and make it successful. Because there are so many of you that do so many different things. Some of them in front where everybody can see and some of them in the background where nobody sees. But God uses your contributions to make this church work. It is important that we serve as leaders. That we step up in our particular area of expertise and our place where we have talent or we have passion. And God use us in that area. It's not just about one or about two or three. It is all of us in the body of Christ. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's very important that you and I understand 
that we are to serve. And it's also sacrificial. There will be suffering at times when we follow Jesus. I remember the, um, the, the calling of Paul. The first time that really caught me what Jesus said to him, not just the first part when, 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 when he's blinded and he says, Who are you, Lord? But if you go a little bit further into that passage, and we'll get to it later in Acts, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Well, that was a compelling invitation, right? Paul, be an apostle. And I'm going to just, just to make you really excited, I'm going to tell you how much you're going to suffer when you follow me. And sometimes following Christ involves suffering because it involves us dying to self, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. We die daily to the flesh, to our own selfish and sinful ways. And we say, not my will, Lord, but your will. And for a church to work, it means that people are putting others ahead of themselves. That they're looking to God's direction instead of their own. And there is that shared and sacrificial leadership that you will see in the book of Acts over and over and over as we walk through it. That makes the church successful. And even the early church... They came to a couple of, at least two in Acts, two big situations where the church comes to some turmoil. But you know what? They work it out. Again, not by one person or two person dictating this is what's going to happen. But they get together and they pray and some leaders speak. And then they all, by God's spirit, are able to make a decision and they move on. They're not stuck in the past fussing. That wasn't the way I voted. They just keep going. And God works through that kind of leadership. Unity within diversity, a shared service, sacrificial service and leadership. And finally, I think a core value of the church that you see here is relationships. 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 I will be very honest that when I first came out of seminary, I, I went to college, got a religion degree, uh, then I went on to seminary, so I had two good preacher degrees. And man, I knew all sorts of strategies, all sorts of theories, all sorts of plans, all sorts of gimmicks and promotions and ways you could tweak things and stuff you could do, X plus Y equals Z, and we're going to make a church go, and we're going to produce good things and get numbers and build the budget and you know, the longer that I've been in church, the more I realize all that stuff can be helpful tools somewhere along the way. But at the core of God's purpose for us is relationship. Because you see, God created us for, the, for relationship. There's really no other reason God created us except for the love that was within himself. He decided to share with others. And he created us to have relationship with him and to have relationship with one another. And those two things are tied together. In fact, every time we celebrate communion, it is a time that we commune with the living Christ who serves as the host of that meal and with all of us believers who partake in it. We commune with one another and we commune with Christ 
And that's what the early church was all about. They did not say, okay, now all 120 of us, you go home and in your own little closet, you spread out to different areas, stay all by yourself and keep praying individually and then uh, good things are going to happen. Now the Bible says they were constantly gathering together They were sharing life together. And you're going to see more of that in Acts chapter 2 where they held things in common. Where where they said, hey, what's mine is yours because you're my brother in Christ. And and they lived life together. They ate meals together. They worshiped together. Life was about relationships with one another. That was so important. And so you and I, we can have committees and elders, and men's groups, and women's groups, and youth ministries, and children's ministries, and all on and on and on and on. We can have all sorts of structure and plans and strategies, but without relationships, churches falter, and churches even die. But when relationships with God and with each other, when those are healthy, when they are growing the way they ought to be, God does amazing things through them. Unity and diversity. Shared and sacrificial service. And relationship. Now, you see those things in the church. Where did they come from? How did the church know? What was their example? How did they know to be like that? How do they know to emphasize those things? That they would be the core of who they were? I'm not sure if any of you, uh, other than Alan, who had to change these out, really noticed, but last week our colors were red. That was for Pentecost. Now next week it's going to turn to green. And it's going to be that way all the way up until the fall. Right before we have Advent, there's going to be a Christ the King Sunday. And that'll change back uh, again. Um, But it's going to be green from here on out. The time after Pentecost, or what I think is kind of unfortunately in uh, in the church calendar, called ordinary time. Because, you know, that sounds like, oh, well, this is the time of the year. We don't pay much attention. We don't do much of anything. It's ordinary time. No, it's not ordinary time at all. It's really, it's like the book of Acts. It's God to be working through his church. But this Sunday, today, the colors are white because this is Trinity Sunday. This is the day that the church celebrates that we serve the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see, I believe that the church had these core values at their very heart, not because they were really smart people who who made up and brainstormed and thought these are some good things, but they had these core values because they saw them in their God that they served. You see, if we think about the Trinity, we see unity within diversity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons and yet one God. How does that work out mathematically? I don't know and neither do you. And we will explode our brains trying to figure that out. We just trust it. 
Uh, theologians try to basically say, well, there was the substance of God is, is equally shared. They're the only ones that have that complete substance of God. Not one-third, one-third, and one-third of the God substance, but somehow each of the three all contain all that it means to be God. Now, that's kind of mind-blowing, right, to figure out, to think about. But think about it this way. We talk about the Holy Spirit coming into the hearts of every believer. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is divided every time someone else comes to Christ? You know, like the, these disciples at the very beginning, they have like one twentieth of the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, when 3,000 folks got saved on the day of Pentecost, did they all of a sudden, oh gosh, oh. I just felt a drop in the Holy Spirit. It went down, I, now I've just got one three thousandth of the Holy Spirit. And the more Christians came, I got less and less and less. No, absolutely not. When you and I say that as believers, as children of God, that we have the Holy Spirit, we don't have some of the Holy Spirit. We each have all of the Holy Spirit dwelling in each of us. Now, how does that work? If you know, you can preach next Sunday. You can explain it to us all. But, you know, it's something that we trust by faith. The Trinity, theologians try to call it that substance. I'd prefer to say it's just stuff, okay? Whatever the God stuff is, because it's not a physical substance. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of those three persons, each has all of the God stuff within them. But yet they are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they have a unity that is a pattern for us. And just in case you think, Brother Tim, that's kind of a stretch. You're really going out on a limb here. No, I'm quoting Jesus, who in John, the Gospel of John, prayed to the Father about, about believers. He said, Father, may they be one as we are one. God, that's a high standard, isn't it? God says the unity that I want to see among men and women and boys and girls in my church, the model for that unity that I want to see is the unity that exists within the Trinity. There is a diversity of personalities, Father, Son, and Spirit, each distinct, and yet they are completely one. What about shared leadership and service? We see in some parts of Scripture, the Father is the focus. In other parts of Scripture, Jesus, the Son, is the focus. In other parts of Scripture, the Spirit is the focus. But there's no animosity. There's no jockeying for position among them. There's no jealousy. Each of them steps up. Each of them does their part when it is appropriate to do their part. Because they are servants. Now that is mind-blowing. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all servants. There's a famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, that tells us about how Christ emptied himself, and we talk about him 
theologians call that um, the, the kenosis, I believe. I might not be remembering the correct word there, but basically Christ emptied himself. He, he laid aside the glory and splendor of heaven. He put aside some of the things that were due to him. And the Bible says, taking on the form of a servant, he came and he dwelt among men. And I never understood that until one day I read a Bible study that said that form of a servant that Jesus took on, that was not a disguise. Uh, that, was not a, that was not a pretend for a little while that I'm not really God. The word there for form meant the true indication of what a person really was. You see, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he displayed for us what the heart of God is. And that heart is to serve Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are God Almighty, and yet they condescend to serve us, to keep their eye upon us, to walk with us, comfort us, to encourage us, to correct us, to teach us. Shared and servant leadership we see in the Trinity. And then relationship. Why is it so important for us as believers to get along? Why is it that Jesus said there's one mark, there's one truth that I'm going to let the whole world look at you and by this one thing, not a million things, but by this one thing, they're going to know that you're really my disciples, that you love one another. Why is that so important to Jesus? Why is it so important to him that the church be united? Because that's the way God is. God is in perfect relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit have an eternal communion. And that oneness, that relationship, that love for one another, and that love for us is the model for you and I as we love and serve God and as we love and serve one another. Did God in heaven Say, I'm going to create these strange beings that I'm going to toy with and I'm going to play with and I'm going to watch them distantly, uninterestedly, capriciously and see how their little miserable lives work out. Did he create us in that manner? No, absolutely not. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, what's known as the Godhead. The three persons of the Trinity decided in eternity past, we will create beings in our image with the capacity to love, the capacity to serve, the capacity for relationship. We will pattern them after ourselves. We will create them in our image. And we will show them, we will model for them that they are to walk in the way that we walk. They are to know how to live by looking at us. We live, we believe a Trinitarian faith. Everything that we live, everything we believe, 
comes from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our values are not what we dreamed up. Not if we're following the correct values. But they are the values that God has modeled for us. Pray with me today. Father in heaven, Jesus and Spirit, we thank you that you are the God three in one. Holy, 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 you are. And yet, God, even though, Father, you are different, you are separated, God, you are so far from sin that we can't even imagine, yet, Lord, he who knew so, no sin became sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God. You loved us so much, Father, that you sent your Son for us, that we may know the way to you and your Spirit might dwell in each of us. And Father, we pray as your church, as your people, Father, that we would appreciate you, the Father. Jesus, we'd appreciate you, the Son. Spirit, Spirit of the living God, may we appreciate and love you and base our lives on what we see in you. Help us now in this time of commitment to discipleship to get rid of sin where we need to get rid of it. Perhaps, Father, today we simply need to embrace new truth or truth we had forgotten about you. And we need to make it a part of our thinking and put it into practice in our lives. Help us to be servants. Father, help us to be unified. Lord, help us to seek to live in loving relationships. Whatever you have called upon us, whatever decisions you've put on our hearts, Lord, may we respond to them in obedience today. And Father, we pray, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.